morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 26 through 27. James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. James writes in James chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. In 1767, a man named Francois-Marie Arouet, whom we know by his pen name Voltaire, wrote a letter to the king of Prussia, Frederick II, and wrote, quote, Christianity is assuredly the most ridiculous, the most absurd, and the most bloody religion which has ever infected this world. Your majesty will do the human race an eternal service by extirpating this infamous superstition. I do not say among the rabble who are not worthy of being enlightened and who are apt for every yoke. I say among honest people, among men who think, among those who wish to think. My one regret in dying is that I cannot aid you in this noble enterprise, the finest and most respectable which the human mind can point out, Voltaire. For Voltaire, the words religion and ridiculous were synonyms. And in our own generation, men like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens have made quite a career out of mocking the so-called ridiculousness of religion. My goal today is not to debate Voltaire, Dawkins, or Hitchens, for that would more appropriately belong to an apologetics class or perhaps a sermon on Romans chapter 1. And our text for this morning is on James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. So instead, my goal for today is to point out actually two points of substantial agreement shared by both the apostles and the atheists. Now, some of you are maybe a little taken aback. You weren't quite expecting that little turn there. But there are two points of substantial agreement which are shared by both the New Testament apostles and by atheists past, present, and I'm sure future. What are those two points of agreement between the apostles and the atheists? Well, the two points of agreement are this. Number one, religion is ridiculous if it is objectively false. Religion is ridiculous if it is objectively false. On that, both the apostles and the atheists agree. The second point of agreement is this. Religion is ridiculous if... It produces hollow hypocrisy. Religion is ridiculous if it produces hollow hypocrisy. On that also, the apostles and the atheists agree. 
Let's just discuss both of those very briefly as introduction. First, the apostles and prophets agree with the atheists and the philosophers that religion is ridiculous if it is objectively false. I want you to listen to what the prophet Isaiah has to say about the ridiculousness of false religion. Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 9. Just listen as I read what Isaiah writes. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame." The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat and he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. But the rest of the same piece of wood he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I've burned half of the piece of wood in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it, and then I make the rest of the block of wood into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? The prophets agree with the atheists that religion, which is objectively false, is ridiculous. I want you to also listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised." For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. You see, the apostles and the prophets agree that religion is ridiculous if it is objectively false. 
And there are, of course, as Isaiah pointed out, many false religions in this fallen world, and those false religions have indeed done a great deal of harm. On that, we can and we do agree with the atheists. But of course, where we disagree is on the premise as it pertains to Jesus Christ. Where we disagree and where we diverge from the atheist onto two radically different paths, them on a broad road which leads to destruction, and the believers on the narrow road that leads to life is this. We believe that Jesus really was crucified for our sins, really did rise from the dead. We believe he really is the Son of God, and we believe that he really will return to rule and reign forever. We agree with them that religion, if objectively false, is harmful, but where we disagree is on the veracity of the Christian gospel, the historical veracity of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and on his promise to return. The second place where the New Testament apostles and the atheist agree is that religion is ridiculous if all it produces is hollow hypocrisy. Religion is ridiculous if all it produces is hollow hypocrisy. And that is the danger that the Holy Spirit is going to warn us against through the pen of James. Listen again to what James says in chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I want you to notice that word worthless in verse 26. James says, look, there is a religion that is worthless or pointless, and the Greek term here is matayos, which means useless, empty, vain, pointless. Now, this term has a slightly different meaning than the one Paul used in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. Remember back in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, which I just read, Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul there, that word vain is the word kenos, which means lacking in truth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if it's not actually true that Christ was raised from the dead, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. In other words, it's not objectively true. Paul is asserting that it all depends on the factuality of these truths. Kenos, the truthfulness or lack thereof. So there are two terms, one used by Paul and one used by James. They're similar in meaning, but they have a slightly different shade of meaning. The term Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, kenos, describes something objectively false and therefore corresponds to point number one. Religion is ridiculous if it is kenos, if it is objectively false. But the term James uses in 
chapter 1, verse 26, Matthaios describes something a little different. Something which is pointless or which doesn't accomplish its goal. Something that is Matthaios. And it therefore corresponds to point number two, that religion is ridiculous if it produces hollow hypocrisy. In other words, if, if your religion is just an empty shell, it is ridiculous. Now since the gospel of Jesus Christ is objectively true, factual, the real danger for those who consider themselves Christians is not point number one, it's actually point number two. And that's why I want to focus on it today. Sadly, many who know the gospel is true fail to be true to the gospel. There is, sadly, sometimes a massive incongruence between what they know and how they live. We sometimes say that it's head knowledge but not heart knowledge. It's just an empty shell. So James is going to address that. In fact, he's going to draw a very sharp contrast between pointless religion and pure religion. He's going to describe pointless religion in verse 26 and then pure religion in verse 27. And then for each of them, he's going to give us two examples. He's going to give us two examples which characterize pointless religion and two examples which characterize pure religion. Pointless religion, James is going to say, is characterized by savage speech and superficial spirituality. Whereas pure religion is characterized by sympathy with suffering and by separation from sin. Now I want to pause and acknowledge my dependence for those second two examples, the wording of them to D. Edmund Hebert. Uh, the first two are mine, the second I borrowed from him because he just put it so succinctly, sympathy with suffering and separation from sin. I want to begin by looking at verse 26 where James describes pointless religion. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart this man's religion is worthless. It's pointless. Notice again the contrast here. There's a huge contrast in the beginning phrase of verse 26 and the beginning phrase of verse 27. Notice the contrast is between man and God. In verse 26, someone thinks himself to be religious. In verse 27, it's the focus has shifted to what God thinks. In verse 26, the focus is on what the hypocrite thinks himself to be. But in verse 27, the focus is on what is pure and undefiled in God's sight. There's a contrast between the man-centered view in verse 26 and the God-centered view in verse 27. And it is this contrast between the man-centered view and the God-centered view which really distinguishes the two. The religious hypocrite thinks highly of himself but thinks little of God. 
the true believer knows that it is God's opinion that really matters. So at the heart of hypocrisy is a man-centered, self-focused worldview. It's a focus on your own opinion, your own evaluation of yourself. Instead of, as Paul says, he says, I don't even judge myself. What matters to me is the judgment of God. So how are you doing so far? Are you focused on what you think about yourself or on what God thinks? How much of your religious activity is motivated by a desire to be able to think of yourself as a good person? Or a good Christian? Are you focused on what you think about you? Or are you focused on what the one and the only one who is the judge, what his verdict and evaluation is? Where's your focus? Are you the judge of you? Or do you sit under the one who is the only judge? There's a contrast between the God-centered and the man-centered views. James then goes on in verse 26 to give the first of two examples of the typical characteristics of a self-focused hypocrite. Hypocrites are often characterized by savage speech. Savage speech. James says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue... Dr. Will Varner paraphrases this as having, quote, a tongue as loose as an unbridled horse. A tongue as loose as an unbridled horse. It's important to note what the illustration is here. In those days where horses and other animals were the mainstays of transportation, people would immediately understand what James is saying here by having an unbridled tongue because an unbridled horse is one that can't be ridden. It's riderless and it's pointless. It's worthless. It doesn't accomplish anything. It's not useful to anyone. An unbridled tongue is like an unbridled horse. It is wild, savage, and riderless. Why do I say riderless? Well, it's because in Galatians 5, through 23, self-control is listed as a key fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you've given your life to Christ and been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, one of the things he produces is self-control, and that gets manifested in your mouth. Just as the absence of a bridle reveals the absence of a rider, someone who exhibits no self-control over their speech reveals the absence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Hebert comments, quote, in view of his failure to bridle his tongue, the hypocrite's evaluation of himself as religious can only be explained as due to self-deception. He fails to see the inconsistency between his assumed acceptance before a holy God and his evil words directed against those around him. J.D. Roberts adds, quote, If we worship God who is Father and who loves his creatures, while we ourselves are heartless and merciless, we should be able ourselves to see that there is something incongruous 
in our worship. The hypocrite has a savage tongue. He is savage in his speech. It's unbridled. Now why does James zero in on this one thing? He could have talked about a whole lot of things as being characteristics of hollow religion, but he focuses on the tongue. Why? Why is it that savage speech is a key indicator that a supposedly religious person is actually unsaved? Because that's exactly what Jesus taught, and James is following his brother's teaching here. Jesus taught that the tongue speaks out of that which fills the heart. Therefore, if fury, filth, folly, and falsehoods fly from the mouth, it's because those are the things that fill the heart. I want to repeat that. If fury and filth and folly and falsehoods fly from the mouth, it's because that's what fills the heart. Listen to what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. Verses 34 through 37. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Don't think you can fly off at the mouth without consequences. Whatever is in the heart flows out of the mouth, and therefore what comes out of your mouth is a key indicator of who you really are. Not who you pretend to be, but who you really are. So let me ask you, what does your mouth reveal about your heart? Is your heart filled with fury? Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 29 says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Is your heart filled with grace or is it filled with fury? Is your mouth filled with filth? If so, it means your heart is filled with filth. In Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 5, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Is your heart and therefore your mouth filled with filth? Is your heart and therefore your mouth filled with folly? 
Proverbs chapter 15, verse 2, says this, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. What's in your heart? It'll come out of your mouth. Is your heart filled with falsehoods and therefore do those falsehoods pour out of your mouth? Proverbs 12, 22 says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully or honestly are his delight. Is your tongue bridled? Whether or not your tongue is bridled and under the direction of the Holy Spirit reveals whether or not the Holy Spirit is in your life. If your tongue is unbridled, your religion is worthless. It is pointless. As a pastor, sometimes I come to know that people who seem oh so spiritual when I see them in church are oh so vicious to those they claim to love. You need to bridle your tongue. The second example that James gives of those who have a hypocritical religion is this. Hypocrites are often characterized by superficial spirituality. James says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. The person deceives his own heart. He has a superficial spirituality. He's self-deceived. The problem with religious hypocrites is not just that they deceive other people into thinking that they're good Christians. It's that they deceive themselves into thinking they're good Christians. They deceive their own hearts. They lie to themselves, and they believe their own lies. This is the most spiritually dangerous state any soul can be in. At least the atheists know they're unbelievers. At least followers of false religions know they're not Christians. At least the materialistic hedonists know that they worship money and pleasure. It's the false believer who is in the most dreadful state of all because he deceives himself into thinking that he's really a Christian. This person is a terror who's convinced herself she's wheat. He's a goat who has convinced himself he's a sheep. Therefore, all of the admonitions and warnings are unheard and unheeded. Hardness of heart. In verse 26, James is reiterating something he began talking about back in verse 22. The danger of self-deception which comes from hearing the word but not doing what it says, verse 22 says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Don't lie to yourself. So do you have a superficial spirituality or do you have a spirit-filled life? Do you have a religion or do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Which is true of you. In verse 26, James 
gave us two typical characteristics of the person whose man-centered, self-focused, fake religion is indeed pointless, worthless. Now in verse 27, he's going to switch to the opposite side of the contrast, and he's going to give us two typical characteristics of the person whose God-centered, spirit-filled, sincere relationship with Christ is a religion that God our Father considers to be pure and undefiled, pure and faultless. So verse 27 talks about now pure religion. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. At the beginning of verse 27, James gives us his first example of what pure and undefiled religion in God's sight looks like. And the first thing he says is that believers are characterized by sympathy with suffering, to use the Edmund Hebert's phrase. Believers are characterized by sympathy with suffering. Verse 27 says that this pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. It's to have sympathy with the suffering. Now in most of the world and for most of human history, the most destitute and the most needy members of a society have been orphans and widows. It's only very, very recently and only in a handful of the most prosperous countries that the ability to accumulate wealth and savings and to have reliable life insurance policies and to build an extensive social safety net and to have multiple employment options have greatly reduced the financial plight of women and children when the head of household dies. Here in the USA, because of those things, being one of the most prosperous countries in the history of the world, folks having the ability to accumulate wealth, to have reliable insurance policies, a social safety net, and multiple employment options. Here in the USA, when we think of the distress of orphans and widows, we think primarily of emotional distress, not economic and physical distress. But for most of human history, And in most parts of the world right now, the death of the primary breadwinner has meant a genuine threat of starvation for orphans and for widows. And apart from the economic distress suffered by orphans and widows, there has sadly been the very real threat of physical distress as well. Not just emotional distress, the loss of a loved one, not just the economic distress of being left destitute, but then also the physical distress of being left without protection against vile offenders. Throughout human history, including right now, widows and orphans have been a primary target of the human traffickers. So the distress suffered by orphans and widows is not just emotional like we tend to think of it here in the U.S. It is economic and it is physical. So what do they need? Well, they need defenders. They need providers 
and they need comforters. They need to be taken care of in their emotional, physical, and economic needs. Caring for orphans and widows is presented here by James as the primum exemplum, to use the Latin term, the prime example of what it means to have sympathy towards the suffering. And James is saying that sympathy towards the suffering is a core character trait of the believer. Why does he make this assertion? Well, because a true believer is someone who has repented of their sin and become a follower of Jesus Christ. And all true believers worship God in spirit and in truth. They're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so the true believer is someone who worships God, follows God, and is indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And that means that their lives will increasingly manifest the character of God. And that means that they will have sympathy for the suffering because God has sympathy for the suffering, especially for orphans and for widows. In his word, God has revealed himself as being full of compassion. Listen to what the Lord says in Psalm 116, verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. Psalm 145, verse 8, speaks of the character of God. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. He's a God who is full of compassion. Furthermore, God has revealed himself as the husband of the husbandless and the father of the fatherless. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 through 19. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. And then Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. See, the Lord protects and the Lord assists and the Lord cares. Therefore, we who are his followers must be like him. And in fact, we are the means through which he does this. As believers, we're followers of Christ, so the goal of our lives must be to be like him. And he cares about orphans, widows, and others who are suffering, and 
so we should too. In fact, that's the religion that God is looking for. Religion that he considers to be pure and undefiled is, according to James, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And since the Lord gives us this as the prime example of the compassionate life that he desires in us, I want to just quickly go over the meaning of the term used there in James 1.27. He says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Well, what does it mean to visit orphans and widows? The term used here is a really rich word. It's a word that has some really important informative and practical shades of meaning, and we see those shades of meaning as it's used in different biblical contexts. First, this word here, which is episkeptomai, let me say that again, episkeptomai, you know, it's those four-syllable words I always struggle with. Episkeptomai. First, this word is used to describe traveling somewhere to check on the well-being of others. It's used in the Septuagint of Esther 2.11, which says that Mordecai would go every day to check on Esther to see how she was doing. That's why it's translated as visit, because it describes someone whose feet actually move to go check on the well-being of someone. Mordecai would go every day to check on Esther. She's forcibly taken into the king's harem, and now Mordecai is going there every day to see if she's okay, to see how she's doing. It's used this way in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, of Moses, who's in Midian, but then he goes to visit the people of Israel to see how they're doing. It's used in Acts chapter 15 verse 36 of the apostles who go back to the people they had preached to to see, to visit them and to see if they're doing okay. So the first meaning of this word is to visit someone for the purpose of checking up on them to see how they're doing, to see if they're okay. In other words, our feet must actually move us to where the orphans and widows are It's hard to check up on someone from afar. You have to go to them. You have to be with them. One of the reasons I went physically to Ukraine, it's not that I couldn't text message them or call them, but there's something about going to them and sitting with them and seeing how they really are. Your feet need to carry you to where the suffering are, and they're not that far away. Go to them. Visit them. The second shade of meaning of this term, episkeptomai, is sustained and serious consideration of someone or something. It means to have them in mind, to be thoughtful. In fact, this same word is used in the Septuagint of Psalm 27.4 for meditating upon God, for having your mind or, and your heart focused on the Lord. So in the context of visiting orphans and widows, it means to actually have them in your thoughts and in your heart. To be thoughtful, it means to notice the needs of others. It means to be thinking about them on a regular basis and considering how they're doing. You need to have them in mind third shade of meaning of episkeptomai is that it's used to describe caring for others in practical and tangible ways. 
in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 6, and then again in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 16, this word is used in the Septuagint to describe the difference between false shepherds and true shepherds, between those who don't care about the flock and those who do. It says that those who are true shepherds, they attend to the flock. They care about them and care for them. They feed them and nurture them and and look out for them and protect them. Whereas the faithless shepherds, the prophets say, leave the flock and don't care what happens to them. This word, episkeptomai, is used in the Septuagint translation of Genesis 50 verses 24 through 25, when Joseph tells the people of Israel, surely God will take care of you. He will, Joseph says twice, take care of you. And this word is also used in that famous teaching of the Lord in Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me and naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. There's that word there in verse 36. I was sick and you visited me. You came to take care of me. And of course they say, well, Lord, when did we see you a stranger invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So the meaning here, as Lunida summarizes it, is to care or look after someone with the implication of continuous responsibility. In other words, this is something a lot deeper than just an occasional act of kindness. Interestingly, this word comes from the same root as the Greek term episkopos, which means an overseer or a pastor. An episkopos is someone who keeps watch over others to ensure their well-being. So just as a pastor has a responsibility to keep watch over the flock, to make sure they're doing well spiritually. Just as a pastor is supposed to continually care for the flock, all Christians are supposed to continually care for the needs of orphans and widows. You, and I mean that both collectively and individually, you are supposed to be the episcopus of orphans and widows, the one who keeps watch over them to ensure their well-being. That's what they need. They need, as it were, a pastor. Not a pastor in the sense of the corporate sense of the pastor of a church, but they need almost as if it were a personal chaplain. Someone who comes alongside to watch over them, to care for them, to make sure they're okay, to make sure they have something to eat, to make sure they have a shoulder to cry on, to make sure they are protected against the wolves and the predators, those who would take advantage of them. That's what we are supposed to be. But in order to do that, our feet have to carry us to them, often and regularly. Christian feet should be carrying the love of Christ to orphanages, to widows' homes, and to the hard parts of town. 
Wherever there is suffering, the feet of those who were saved by our Savior's suffering must go. Where there is sorrow, the feet of those who believe and follow the man of sorrows must go. So the question is, do our feet go where the Savior's feet have told us to go? Well, James ends by giving us a final example of those whose religion is pure. They keep themselves separate from sin. He says, religion that God our Father considers as pure and faultless as this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Again, James points out that the life of the believer should match the character of the one he believes in. If you are a true believer in God, your life must match his character and he is holy. Since he's the husband of the husbandless and the father of the fatherless, we must visit orphans and widows in their distress. And since God is holy, we must be holy. In fact, that's what's written in 1 Peter 1.16. Be holy, for I am holy. So here's the question for you. Are you religious or ridiculous? Are you truly religious in the true sense of that word of having a personal relationship with Christ? Is your religion pointless or pure? Are you a false professor or a true possessor of the Christian faith? Your mouth will reveal the truth, and so will your feet, and so will your life. Pointless religion is characterized by savage speech and superficial spirituality. Pure religion is characterized by sympathy with suffering and separation from sin, which describes you. Lord, my prayer is that the second list will be descriptive of each and every one of us here. Lord, for those of whom the first list is descriptive, may this be their day of genuine repentance and coming to a real and life-transforming, heart-changing, feet-pointing relationship with Jesus Christ. For this we pray in your name. Amen.